from time to time, the Buddha would remind the bhikkhus that the Dhamma that he taught, the truth, is that which exists whether a Buddha arises in the world or not. It's just the way it is. The teachings of the Buddha weren't a special kind of wisdom or knowledge passed down from him to others as if uh, completely reliant on uh, one person handing something over to another in that sense he talked about the Dhamma as being something that exists and the Buddha is really revealing what is there already. In one sense, you could say rediscovering what is there already compared the Dhamma to being like an ancient city lost in the jungle and the Buddha forges a path through the jungle and arrives at this lost city then can show the pathway to others to also reach this this lost city. The truths that he taught, they're there, they exist whether a Buddha arises or not. the nature of the practice for us following the path is one of looking and learning investigating until we also can see know understand this truth uh, like the Buddha, following in his footsteps. The framework he used to describe truth is the Four Noble Truths, Arya Satcha Dhamma. It's this which uh, penetration of these four noble truths which frees a human heart from suffering and the causes of suffering and the endless round of birth and death which characterizes uh, our existence. The Four Noble Truths realization of them is realization also based on following the path, the Eightfold Noble Path. So this is the vehicle, the tool that we use in order to gradually gain understanding of truth and Dhamma. And the Buddha explained over and over again that our suffering that we experience is always 
coming from causes and conditions rooted in ignorance. And you know, what is ignorance? It's ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Not yet clear on what is dukkha, what is its cause, what is its end and the path that leads to its end. The causes of dukkha that he pointed out, ignorance, and then all the mental defilements that arise based on that, craving and attachment, mental states of greed, anger, delusion. What he learned and explained is that these are impermanent the mental defilements are not fixed entities in themselves they're not part of our minds as human beings our jitter they arise according to causes and conditions and when we understand this we can also understand the way to abandon defilements, free the mind from the defilements and the suffering that they cause and reach the realization of the end of suffering. He pointed out that this is possible for us as humans to do this if we follow the path correctly. to follow the path up. We have to, in the beginning, accept the fact that we haven't yet had this realization or deep insight that the Buddha had. We may have partial insight. We have some understanding, but it's not yet complete. So we still have to rely on the path and use the path the sila, the samadhi, the panya, the factors of the path as our vehicle, as our tools to develop ourselves. We have to cultivate the path. We have no choice in this. And although we hear the teachings and we understand that ultimately everything is anicca, dukkha, anatta, not self. We haven't yet seen that or known that and purified our minds from the kilesa, the defilements yet. We just know it with our memory to begin with, with our understanding from what we've heard and thought about and read. So we have to accept that we do need the path as our vehicle, as our raft to cross the ocean. So we need to have the willingness, the desire, the willingness to use the path as well, use the the tools that the Buddha left us. We can't yet just sit down in our practice and say, well, it's all anicca, dukkha, anatta, I don't need any of it, and just drop it, let it all go. We can't do that yet. We have to be humble and honest and accept that we still need the path. That requires us to continue to learn and study what the path is and then use it to train ourselves. Sometimes, especially in the beginning, that can seem bothersome, 
cumbersome as the path requires us to develop and the sila we have to learn the vinaya and learn how to keep the vinaya if it wasn't necessary the Buddha wouldn't have laid down the rules of the Vinaya to help us in the very early days just for a short period there were those with little dust in their eyes who didn't need any Vinaya laid down and the Buddha could teach very easily and they could see and understand very easily and quickly they could drop their defilements quickly and easily. But even in the lifetime of the Buddha, with the growing number of bhikkhus, it became necessary to start codifying, uh, laying down rules and practices for bhikkhus to deal with these defilements which, coming from ignorance, cloud over the mind prevent us from seeing the truth and prevent us from freeing ourselves from suffering. So the Buddha himself saw it's necessary to have Vinaya, have Sila as in something that rules of training, practices that we follow. Even though it's still what we call Samuti, Banyati, rules or guidelines, five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, 227 precepts, all the rules of the Vinaya outside of the Patimokha. These are all Panyati, they're laid down there. Nowadays they're written down for us to read. We hear them, we describe them. And we can say on the one hand, a panyati, that's just superficial reality, conventional reality. It's not the heart of the Dhamma. It's not the Dhamma, Dhamma of the enlightened mind. But it comes from the Dhamma of the enlightened mind. It has already seen the path and knows what's involved in order to train a human jitter to free itself from the effect of these mental defilements which obscure truth. So we have to accept that we still need to rely on panyati, samuti panyati, the conventional reality and the conventional form of a bhikkhu. Even though it's a vehicle that takes us to trans transcend ultimately conventional reality, we still have to rely on it. As we know, even right up to the point, even an arahant still has to come to the Patimokha and listen to the rules. There's reasons for this. And the Buddha saw that it's useful primarily for individuals to learn to train themselves to restrain the defilements, both on the level of body, speech and mind. To learn composure, restraint, contentment, fewness of wishes, harmless behavior. We have to use the rules in the beginning to train ourselves. But it also supports the harmonious living of bhikkhus as a group, developing mutual harmony, uh, respect, peaceful living also supports the laity, gives them a good example of how to live together wisely and peacefully and to maintain their faith because we're dependent on them for support, material support in order to live. So the sealer that we keep, even though it's it can seem superficial, external, it's still essential. We can't yet do away with it. 
And this is a point we have to keep coming back to in our practice over and over again. So as the Buddha said, it's the one of the causes and conditions for samadhi and panya to arise is a firm foundation of sila. So if we haven't yet experienced firm or stable samadhi or deep insight revealing the Four Noble Truths, well, we have to always go back to our sila as well to look at the, the foundation of our practice. Ajahn Chah talked about the practice of sila is that behavior, external behavior that brings us to be able to be mindful of the in and out breath. It's a very simple but direct description of the, the role of our sila and our vinaya in our daily practice. If we find it hard to practice parikama, whether it's using the breath or putto, the body or metta or any of the other meditation objects, if we're having trouble turning to it, then we have to see the relationship between our sila and our state of mind and the preparedness for turning to the meditation object. So Vinaya training, the monastic training, the form, the rules, the ways of practice, they're all supporting the development of composure, restraint, calm, peaceful living, which supports our ability and our freedom, you could say, to turn to watch the breath and to develop meditation to a higher level. If we look at our, our bhikkhus training, it requires the development of composure, which requires the development of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Sati Sampajanya. We have to practice mindfulness of our rules and becoming, being able to remember the rules and then recollect them in our daily life as a way of training ourselves. Whether it's the major ones which we perhaps are more clear about, the Parajika rules, then all the refinements, the you could say the steps that lead up to the Parajika rules, down from Sangati Sesa Pachitya down to Dukatas. In the bigger picture, they all have a, a role to play in training the mind in Sati and Sampachanya. So they sometimes say, um, what makes an arahant, an arahant, they say, is because they don't forget or give up the minor rules, the minor training rules. They take them as important because one thing leads to another. If we are too quick to do away with the minor training rules, then it's very easy for our sati and sampachanya to also disappear. Whereas if we keep up the minor training rules, they give us the strength of sati sampachanya to not only keep the major training rules and prevent any big transgression which would cause us regret and suffering, but also prepares the mind very well for the deepening of samadhi practice and the deepening of insight. And they go together, they're part of a whole. 
Vinaya training rules also not only develop Satisampajanya, but they also encourage the bringing up of wholesome states of mind and letting go, abandoning of unwholesome states of mind or the defilements which are the very cause of our suffering. We can see in our daily life, our practice over many days, weeks, years, in these states of mind we talk about, wholesome states, kusala dhammas, unwholesome states, akusala dhammas, they both arise according to their causes and conditions. And keeping up strict practice of Vinaya and putting effort into that is a very direct way to bring up wholesome states of mind and maintain them and develop them. Or letting go of the Vinaya, losing interest in it, being careless with it is a very obvious cause and condition for unwholesome states of mind to arise and take over the mind or to be difficult to abandon. One of the values of Sangha, say we're part of a very large Sangha, the Wapapong Sangha, with monks who from one reigns right up to 40, 50, 60 reigns with many Ajahn Chah and many of his senior disciples already passed away in the robes having kept the Vinaya. We have a large Sangha. We can see the value of this training in uh, mindfulness, clear comprehension, restraint, composure, and all the wholesome dhammas it brings up for individuals over many years practiced. We have living examples of the value of this. A very wide, large sangha with many characters. And there's obviously not just one kind of monk within the sangha. There's very many different characters, different personalities, backgrounds, nationalities and cultures. But we can see the value of uh, this training over many, many years practice. All these, perhaps the more senior monks particularly, we can see them as Kalyanamitta. The value of people who haven't dropped the training, haven't given it up. They've kept up the training, not just the major rules or even the minor rules. They've kept up the practice of mindfulness, restraint, composure over many years. So when you meet them, even if you don't speak to them, just seeing monks who've practiced like that can be very inspiring and very beneficial example of the living value of the Vinaya training. That's on the outside, we can't really know on the inside. Perhaps if we hear Dhamma talks, we can, they can share their insights and their practice with us. But just on the outside, how people practice, how they live day by day, we get a very good example and we can learn from that. It can be very helpful for us. This is what the value of Kalyanamitta, and particularly Kalyanamitta, who have practiced over many years and just give us that sense of all these people haven't given up with the practice. They've maintained it, the value of that. Part of our Vinaya training is based on that. So training in body and speech, how we relate to senior monks, seniority in the Sangha. We have rules guiding our behavior even for how to treat a monk ordained just one day before us. We still 
have ways of showing respect and then certainly for acharyas and senior teachers we bow we bow to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha every day many times we bow to senior monks monks more senior to ourselves we receive bows if we're more senior we receive bows with Anjali and just bowing is physical a physical practice it's uh, is just a superficial thing maybe we don't need to bow but in the beginning we have defilements when we come into the monastery and bowing is a very good training in mindfulness and developing wholesome mental states on a regular basis when you bow you have to physically stop maybe by stopping physically mentally you slow down a bit and actually think about why you're bowing, what it what the purpose of it and is it sampajanya arising. You know, the mindfulness is the stopping. Sampajanya is the consideration, wise consideration of what you're doing at that moment. Knowing oh, I'm now I'm bowing to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, now I'm bowing to a senior monk. One can even bow to a monk who's not there, one can bow in one's kuti, one can even bow to one's parents recollecting the gratitude to parents having brought us into the world, giving us birth and life and the chance to practice Dhamma and so on. And this is Sampajanya arising with Sati, just with bowing. Or receiving a bow with Anjali, maybe practice metta, compassion, and mutual respect for other fellow practitioners and for the Vinaya. Sampajanya arises receiving a bow and we display that with our bodily behavior, physical gesture of Anjali. We can see many, many practices on a daily basis of bringing up Sati Sampajanya in this way. In the way... Lumpur Jan, Jan Charles, one of his senior disciples, used to come to Nana Chat in the old days and say, you can always see a monk's state of mind from the way he chants. You know, we don't know who attains deep samadhi or insight, but the way people chant shows a lot about their state of mind. He said, when you see someone chanting, say, uh, evening chanting or chanting a blessing at the mealtime, look at the hands. He always used to pick, pick on monks whose hands were dropping down, not very held with much uh, firmness. They're kind of a bit careless or unmindful. He say, this is a sign the mind is not with the action. The mind is not with the chanting, there's no sampajanya, no awareness of what's happening at that time. Maybe the monk is tired or lazy or just distracted. But he said he would always point this out. Sometimes he could get very refined on this. When you, when you chant a blessing, you sit up with a straight back, you hold your hands erect sitting puppy up, the sort of traditional respectful way, and chant loudly. You put your effort into the chanting. This is a sign that you have sati sampajanya at that moment in the act of chanting. You know why you're chanting. So if it's anamodhana, you're chanting an anamodhana of the goodness of the laity in their dana offering the merit of that occasion you're showing you're aware of that you're aware of physically what you're doing similarly with morning evening chanting you, you can be aware of how you sit where your hands are where your legs are where your head is how how erect are you how straight are you how much effort you're putting in at that moment 
This is just Sati Sampajanya in a, a task that we perform every single day. So it shouldn't be overlooked. And it goes straight on into your meditations and you chant. You're aware of your posture and you're aware of what you're doing while you chant. The words, the meaning of the words, remembering the words themselves. And then when you meditate, well again, you establish satisampajanya by sitting erect, as the Buddha said, sit erect, straight, backed putting energy into our posture and then bring attention to the feeling of the in-breath and out-breath. It's no different from, say, chanting or any of the other activities we do. We practice sati as we put a robe on And we actually stop, think about how we're getting this robe on. Is it neat and even all round as expressed, described in the Vinaya? If you practice doing that regularly, develop Satisampajanya and just putting a robe on, then it naturally provides you with the mindfulness, the firmness of mind to continue that contemplation. Mindfully reflecting, I use this arm, this robe. You're using a robe to protect you from the weather and for modesty. And that's not just your arm, your jiwara. If you're putting on extra clothes in the winter, you put as you put them on, you're mindfully aware this is to protect you from the weather. And that leads on to the deepening reflection that these robes that I wear are made up of the four elements. They're without form of life, they're not a being, a person. They're made up of earth, air, fire and water. What happens to these robes, we put them on, they get dirty, they get soiled over time, we have to wash them because they come in contact with this body. So simply learning to wear a robe mindfully leads on into a contemplation of the four elements and uh, realization of anicca dukkha anatta. This is the way the Vinaya, when practiced well, supports the development of samadhi and panya in our practice. We can see that even though the Vinaya is quite uh, quite a lot to remember and is quite detailed, quite involved, but it's simply giving us a way of training ourselves in different situations throughout our day and becomes a mindfulness training in itself and a training in bringing up wholesome dhammas and abandoning unwholesome dhammas. As you put on your robe or as you're chanting, you can also assess your own state of mind. If you are resisting in some way or the mind is not with the action, there's no mindfulness. Why is that? It's probably an unwholesome mind state taking over some delusion or distraction, daydreaming maybe even just resistance, aversion to the training, I don't want to do this at that time. But it's bringing mindfulness to bear on that state of mind at that time in that activity. It's actually helping us to see our own mind, to see the nature of the mind, to see defilement arising perhaps or to be aware when defilement is not there and, unwhol- and wholesome dhammas have arisen. Maybe it brings up a sense of faith, devotion, gratitude, or just supports the mindfulness of the breath or the mindfulness of some insight into an dukkha anatta. 
that every time we continue on in our daily activities, the practice of mindfulness keeps bringing us back to the present moment. And so even these mundane activities start to show us our own mind, reveal our own mind. And this is the way we can actually start to realize the Four Noble Truths in daily life. If we transgress our rules of training and we become aware of that, then the way we deal with that, we become mindful of a rule we've broken. Then every two weeks we come together and we reveal our offences to each other. We sh- we show we display our defence, our offences to the other bhikkhu who is listening. So we, often we practice saying in our own language in English before the Pali, if there's something we've done that we know we we broke an offence, we bring it up. This is again in line with this sense of getting to know our own mind. And we accept that as we come into the bhikkhu life, we have our past conditioning. So sometimes the defilements take over the mind. We do lose our mindfulness, get caught into greed, anger, delusion in different ways. When we become aware of this, then we take note of that and then bring it up at the right time before the patimoka. And in that little ritual or ceremony we do, we're revealing an offence and the other bhikkhu, are you aware of this? Are you mindful of this? And uh, we make a determination not to do it again. Having acknowledged our fault, our wrongdoing, we determine not to do it again with mindfulness and that's a way of training the mind to abandon defilements sometimes we might mm, slip up again in the future through a lack of mindfulness but generally you can see how over time becoming mindful of rules kept and rules broken over time we gradually start to train ourselves, change the patterns, the habits of our actions, our speech, until it becomes more normal and and comfortable for us to keep the Vinaya. The Vinaya at all times is helping us to point to the mind itself, to see the intentions and the quality of our intention, the wholesome, unwholesome intention behind our actions. We train like this and sometimes it's not always easy and when we have lapses of mindfulness sometimes it can be embarrassing. If we break a rule, if other bhikkhus know about it, we're embarrassed. But even that sense of embarrassment, we just have to practice mindfulness of that and see how maybe that is based on greed, hatred, delusion, sense of self, sense of self-pride, idealism, and so on. If we can see the value of the training, though, we'll see, well, even the shyness, embarrassment, or pride, this is an obstacle as well, which has to be observed, recognized, let go of. And the training helps to show us that. So we actually become over time more comfortable even with recognizing our own faults and weaknesses and problems, sometimes even discussing them, bringing them up with another bhikkhu at the uh, patimoka or with a teacher, or sometimes just with ourselves, making it clear to ourselves so that we can carry on training. You can see over time this is gradually maturing the mind. The mind becomes wiser in its attitude in how to deal with defilement as it comes up in daily life. Dealing with it wisely, skillfully. 
and that naturally means with kindness and compassion. It's not suppressing defilement or criticizing ourselves or others for having defilements. It's actually learning how to recognize defilement and deal with it skillfully. It's seeing where the defilement's arising and pulling it out, taking it out like a thorn out of your foot when you walk through the forest. If it's hurting, you pull it out. So it's important as we develop our meditation to also see this relationship between sila, samadhi and panya to keep coming back to developing a wise attitude to our sila and to giving importance to it even to the very small little details of our sila because it helps us to see our own state of mind. Sometimes because it is exposing our defilements and we find it burdensome, the Vinaya. We keep having to go against desires and moods and it's hard work sometimes. So we need to have a lot of patience and keep developing this appreciation, the, the good attitude and to see it as a friend really. It's helping us, supporting us even though it can be hard work. If we do that, then we can see the value of how it's a vehicle taking us through to deeper levels of concentration and deeper levels of wisdom. If we're always just in our minds resisting the Vinaya and complaining, then it does make life difficult. And we, we're as if we're trying to get through to the higher levels of practice by skipping over a fundamental part or doing away with a part that we can't really afford to do away with. We, we have to have the sealer there. There's that simile Ajahn Chah used about the Vinaya and the outward form of the practice that we, we rely on so much in the beginning but often we resist or we, we find it bothersome compared it to the like the outer shell of a coconut you go to the marketplace to buy coconut when you buy a coconut your aim is to eat the flesh and drink the milk from the inside of the coconut, but you carry the whole coconut home and break it open with a machete till you can get to the nice bit inside. But you still rely on the outer shell and the husk and all the waste in order to carry it home first and preserve the inside. And the Vinaya and the conventional form of the Buddhist path is like that. We need to rely on it even though it seems like a heavy shell that we just waste and, and don't really need it when we get to the deep samadhi and insight. But it's in fact vital in order to get to the deep insight and the samadhi. We have to have the outer shell first. But it's heavy, and so we often we're feeling lazy. We want to get rid of it or do away with it. But if you do away with it, well, you lose the whole thing. This is why Sangha and teachers are so supportive in our practice. The tendency when we do away with Sangha and teachers, say, are cultural conditioning is often to be very independent and want to do it alone and we think we know best well if you're ready for that it's okay but if you're not ready for that then it's like trying to do away with the coconut husk and you end up not getting the milk or the flesh either and end up with nothing 
so it's important to consider this to see the value of the sangha, the ritual, the form, the conventional form as a vehicle for supporting the deepening of our practice. You can see keeping the vinaya, following the monastic routine, the form that's laid down, the training form, the system of training from Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Man. This is protecting your practice in the long run, supporting it, protecting it. And it doesn't bring up any conflict with the development of sati and sampajanya and all the wholesome dhammas that we need to develop in the practice. It's only helping that. Often we find the monastic routine can be a little bit boring or repetitive and partly it's our desire for sense stimulation we're looking for things that are different so either within the monastic form we're looking for different kinds of dhamma different meditation techniques different places to practice and so on or even one step beyond we go and we're looking for direct sense stimulation outside of the monastic form sight, sight tastes, sounds, smells, touch, different ideas, and so on. But we should also see the value in routine and following a routine over and over again, keeping the same rules every day, following routines. They can be of value to show up or highlight to us our state of mind during the practice just to show us whether we're mindful of our routine or our rules of Vinaya or not. Whether we're willing to follow the Vinaya and the routine and the practices or not. If we're not, it's usually either just distraction, we're too distracted or scattered in our behavior, delusion has taken over, or we're averse to it, we have maybe some pride or ego and we just don't want to give in or do it another way, we want to do it our way so we have a sort of stubbornness where we don't want to keep a rule or follow a practice or it's some form of greed, sense desire which which is disturbing to say if you get caught into greed for a, a particular requisite and you want to get around the Vinaya or you have lust talk to or engage with some female and you start breaking the vinaya. You can see greed, hatred and delusion they are the reasons we start to break the vinaya but you, by following a, a regular routine habitual routine it starts it helps to show this up just our attitudes and our state of mind from day to day what's happening where are we at any one time? In Sati Sampajanya we need to be developing at all times mindfulness of our sila leading on to mindfulness of the body. Where are you? What are you doing? What's your posture? What's the the activity you're involved in? Mindfulness of the feeling. Now maybe sense the pleasures leading to Pleasant feeling or the desire for pleasant feeling can lead us to lose track of the routine or the vinaya. So maybe if there's a morning meditation, the pleasure in sleep or lying in a warm bed stops you getting up for a morning meeting. Or the desire for pleasure from food, maybe it affects your practice of the vinaya. You become very agitated or speedy around food or aggressive when you don't get the food or the kind of food you want or drinks or requisites they start to show us our state of mind when we keep the Vinaya or practice mindfulness the Vinaya when we lose our mindfulness it starts to become obvious if you're regularly practicing 
following rules and routines and then sometimes you don't and you see your your state of mind you start to see the cause for your unwholesome state of mind where is it coming from and what's happening gives you a very good reflection or when we just fall into dullness or even just lack of inspiration we lose all our motivation at least it helps us to show show this up where we maybe we're not putting much effort into our into the monastic routine or into our chores or the various practices we have it's at least it shows us where the problem is what we what we we need to look at might not yet give us the solution but at least it helps us to show us the problem Sometimes the solution is just being very patient and enduring through a mood that so we feel very low or depressed or lonely or fed up. We'll just use, we can use the monastic form, the routine and the practices just to keep going through that mood until it passes. And so it can even be a basis for insight into impermanence, the impermanence of a mental state. You know, even though you're fed up or depressed just to keep doing the routine that you've already established to keep doing the meditation periods to keep doing the chores to keep doing the different practices learning chanting and so on until that mood has passed by and that, then you can really value the structure of the monastic training and the lifestyle. You can see even the most deepest mood of depression, loneliness, anger, despair is impermanent. And then following the routine and keeping it up can help show that to you. And then you know for yourself in your own heart, oh, that mood is just a passing mood. It wasn't real you can actually gain insight from just following the routine in that way. Often when we're not practicing with much wisdom, then we often are driven by craving in our practice. So we have craving to achieve peaceful states of mind, achieve insight, achieve this and achieve that. Uh, it's often at that time that we don't appreciate the Vinaya, the monastic form, we see it as an obstacle. See, it's all getting in our way, the different routines, living with other people, the different ways of behavior and so on, seems to be getting in our way. But over time, keeping the routine, keep coming back to the Vinay, even that can be exposed. Various kinds of craving, desire for results. It's all forms of craving and attachment. They're all based on sankharas. So they're all things that arise and pass away. Maybe just learning to practice mindfulness of the daily routine of the following the routine, following the Vinaya, keep coming back to the present moment with your mindfulness practice and with meditation object. Maybe that's enough to achieve peace and contentment without a lot of craving and desire for results. So we shouldn't underestimate the basic practices that we were given, the basic practices of restraint, practices putting effort, energy into mindfulness, clear comprehension in our daily routines. You can also use the quality of satya, just being true, well, true to our own resolutions to follow the practice to keep the Vinaya we all, we all made a resolution when we became bhikkhus to uphold the Vinaya and practice for 
the abandoning of unwholesome mental states, the development of wholesome states, the realization of Nibbana. Within that we can develop such our on a daily basis also to keep up our practice, to keep putting effort into mindfulness practice, keep putting effort into the meditation, keep putting effort into our Vinaya training. Satcha can be a useful tool, whether it's just one sitting of meditation or one practice of walking meditation, just establishing a goal that you're going to stick to, to to sit for an hour or two, a certain length of time, or walk for an hour or two. To keep up different practices, to learn to chant, to keep different rules that we find difficult to keep, and so on. Or it can be something we develop on a long term where we take up a practice which I'm going to do this practice for the whole pantsa or for a, re- a period of time. It's developing that, again, that quality of being honest and clear with oneself. Knowing one's own mind and then taking on a practice and being true to that, being honest to that. If you're going to sit meditation, then use use satcha to help you to guide you to. First of all, you understand what you want to do, what, how long you want to sit for, and what you think you can manage, and then use satcha make a clear resolution in your mind to sit or walk for that period of time. You can even speak it out aloud. Satcha can be used, we actually verbalize it, not just in our mind, but speak out aloud. Or if you're taking on a particular practice to do something, actually speak it out aloud to oneself. Occasionally you even can speak it out to somebody else. There's another way where we're just showing ourselves our own mind and bringing up a wholesome dhamma in a situation. If we never do this, well, we can obviously practice that people have different ways of training themselves, but sometimes it's very easy to just drift by and let our moods take over. So when we want to do something, we do it. When we don't, we don't. And the kalesas can be very strong then. So sometimes the use of satya making a resolution and be very true, honest to that resolution is a very clear way to deal with certain problems or issues that come up in the practice. Deal with, say, laziness or heedlessness or deal with desire. Sometimes you can just say to yourself, you sit down for an hour's meditation, I'm not going to indulge in any thoughts of sense desire in this one hour. You make your own satcha, aditana. And if any thoughts come up, then you have to do your best to give, let them go, not to give in to them. Or I'm not going to give in to a thought of anger for this one hour. And just use that whole hour to be very, very firm following your satcha, not to give in to a particular defilement. I knew one monk who had problems with sleepiness, so he said, I'm going to sit the whole night without sleepiness. Sometimes satcha can be used to very dramatic, beneficial results. Obviously it has to be guided by wisdom, but we can all find areas where we can use satcha, and sometimes just making it very, very clear to yourself this is bringing up sati sampajanya in your meditation can be directed to the vinaya or to the practice of meditation or just some particular defilement that you see needs to be addressed this is the way we can train ourselves we have all this free time to sit and walk and do the the practice 
So we can find different skillful means in this way. Maybe when the weather's cold, just to bring up clear determination in the mind not to give in into any negative thoughts about the cold or it's wet. And just to take it all as just sense contact, just feelings of cold or heat, different kinds of waitana, different kinds of potapa, heat and cold on our skin. Just take a particular mental formation that's bothering us and just make a determination. I'm not going to proliferate on that particular thing for, say, the rest of the panzer or something like that. We can use it in a very refined, detailed way just to hone in on a particular defilement and just work on it to the point where we can not follow that way of thinking or acting. This is the way we train our mind. We train it in Satisampajanya, beginning with the Vinaya through to the Barigama Pawanaya, through to different Ubayas, skillful means to help us put the mind into a, way, a place where it can actually see Dhamma see the Four Noble Truths and actually change itself for the better. So I'll leave these thoughts with you for your contemplation tonight. <laughs> 